Welcome to Horses for Future. Horse people can make a difference in the climate change crisis. Together, we're learning how. My name is Alexander Kurland. I'm the author of The Click That Teaches, a step-by-step guide in pictures, and many other books and DVDs on clicker training. But this is not a podcast about training horses. Instead, we're learning how horse people can make a positive difference for the environment. The idea is a simple one. Our horses need pasture, so horse people tend to have land. We need healthy pastures for our horses, which means that becoming better stewards of the land is a winning combination. It's good for our horses, good for us, and good for the planet. If you've been listening to this podcast, you know I've been looking at the work of Dr. Doug Tallamy. Dr. Tallamy is an entomologist who has become alarmed by the decline in biodiversity caused by climate change and habitat loss. He's launched, in his words, a grassroots call to action to restore biodiversity and ecosystem function by planting native plants and creating new ecological networks. To learn more about what horse people can do to contribute to Dr. Tallamy's initiative, I've been visiting around the planet to see what some of my horse-owning friends are doing with their land. So far, we've been to Australia and to Scotland, and this week we're visiting with Jane Jackson in northern Vermont. This is part two of our conversation. We're going to begin this week by talking about dung beetles. So yeah, lots of birds, lots of bugs, and then my dung beetles. Yes, tell us about the dung beetles. Pleased with my dung beetles that I didn't even know what they were at first until I told my husband. So I have a sacrifice paddock. It's what some people will call a dry lot, but we call it a sacrifice paddock because you sacrifice the grass in that section so that the rest of the the grasses can grow. So when they are confined, um, they're sacrificed there. And so they're, um, they spend overnight there because the, the um, divider fences that I put up in the summer for all the different paddocks is electric rope. And because they're moving paddocks every night when it gets dark, anytime I've tried to leave them out overnight, somebody ends up going through a fence. So it's, I just say, yes. no guys, you, you know, just stay up here where I know you're safe. You're not gonna go through a fence. And so they get locked in over there. And every morning I go out and I pick it out. And I started noticing when I would scoop up a pile of manure that there were these big black beetles and great big holes underneath them. And I told my husband and he was so excited. He said, dumb beetles. And for some reason or other at our previous farm, we don't know why, he never saw them. And he said, I got really upset because I kept hearing if you took good care of the land, you would get dung beetles. And I never saw dung beetles. Well, we have massive amounts of dung beetles now. And they are somewhat miraculous in, and I wish I could quote it, but it's like they can move 90 times their weight in fluid from above ground to below ground overnight. So I go out in the morning and the manure, you know, everything gets picked up every morning. So when I go out the next morning, it's only the manure that has landed overnight. And it looks like the manure you see out west in the desert, you know, these dried up cow patties, except they're not crusted over. 
you go to scoop them up and you're like picking up dried grass because the dung beetles have taken all the fluid out of that manure pile and taken it underground and done whatever magic they do. Hopefully they take it out to the field. But once we saw them there, we started seeing that they were out in the pastures as well. And they were doing it with the cattle manure and the sheep manure as well as the horse manure. So that made him very happy, which made me happy. And now they're just, they're just fascinating to watch. You know, when I, when I find one and scoop it up and they scurry around. It's very entertaining to watch them. <laughs> Because they are an important, they're an important part of the whole cycle. So what do you think, what's the difference? How do you, what accounts for the fact that you have done beetles? Well, do you have any clue? My only clue is someone told me that um, uh, wormer, that they won't survive wormers. No, no. But we, I don't feel like we've changed our worming regimen at all here versus there. So I really can't say what the difference is. Um, we were there longer, I, I don't know. The soil, we had more clay soil at our previous farm and it's, it's not nearly as dense soil here. So I, I can't tell you what, what the, you know, we worm, we basically deworm as infrequently and um, neglectfully as we can because when the animals are healthy, I'm not gonna worry about you know, right. adding chemicals to their systems. So I, I, yeah, I don't, I don't know. So you celebrate the fact that they are there. That's right. And hope that they continue to be there. That's right. Yeah. 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 Sign. And as long as there's plenty of bugs and monarchs, we, you know, we see monarchs, not as many as I would like to see. And then there was, there was another type of swallow that we had one year, there were just massive amounts of them on the power line along the road. So year to year, you know, things change. Well, we've got plenty of coyotes around, zillions of turkeys and those sorts of things, you know, cycle through year to year. It seems that one year there's a lot of squirrels and the next year there's a lot of coyotes and the next year they're, you know. <laughs> Yes. It depends on who thrives on who who else's demise. Right. <laughs> yes. yes. But you're you're certainly seeing the the evidence of good land management in terms of the natural neighbors who are moving yeah. in. So how do you train your animals to eat weeds? Okay, so there's a book called Cows Eat Weeds by Kathy Voth that how to turn your cows into weed managers that explains the whole process. But basically what I did is you go out around the farm and you collect the weed, you know, you cut them off and you give them to the animals when they don't have access to pasture. And that's when they say, okay, I don't have orchard grass. I'll eat this stuff. And they develop a taste for it. So you're not forcing them to eat it. But it's sort of like, okay, here's a plate of brownies. Here's a plate of broccoli. Which are you going to eat? Well, some people are going to gravitate to the brownies and never eat the broccoli and they'll never develop. Or, you know, maybe there's broccoli and there's lettuce and there's some new bizarre vegetable that you've never had before. Well, you know, these two things are good. So that's what you're going to eat. But if that's all there is, even if you're not hungry, I'll try it because it's there. Right. I assume that you have confirmed that 
this weed that you are yes. collecting is not toxic. Correct. Absolutely. Yeah. We have a lot of buttercups here and that is toxic and that's certainly nothing I would encourage them to eat. And I think originally, actually, you mix it in. So in the in the book and in the videos that I've watched on it, you can you can look, get up on YouTube and find videos. They're feeding sheep in a, you know, in a feeder. So they will mix, they'll mix it in very slowly. You know, so they'll put a whole bunch of, you know, good chopped feed in and just mix some of this in and gradually introduce more and more and more of the, the quote unquote weed until the sheep are happily eating that. And then they go right out on pasture and go, yep, I'll eat this. As I say, I did it slightly differently and, and gave it to them in their stalls. And they, you know, they had plenty to eat. Nobody was hungry, certainly. But they were like, okay, I'll eat this. And they would pick through it. And I should probably, you know, I should do it. It was kind of a, a, a game last year, a test to see whether it would really work. And now that I know that it does, I'll try a little harder and be a little more. So what are you feeding them that they would normally have rejected? The bed straw. Oh, they, would, okay. they would, you know, leave all the bed straw and would yep. eat, yep. eat around it and leave it. And if I cut it and give it to them by itself, I should, I should find that. I took a bunch of pictures and videos of them eating it. And when I was experimenting it with it last year, I forgot to look for that, but. Yeah, if they could eat that, because that fo Canadian foxtail, there isn't much of, and we're just trying to, as I say, my husband vengefully goes around with his knife, whacking it off, but the bed straw is so pervasive. Yeah. Um, yeah I really like to see them. I take the goats out grazing, and it's interesting to see what they will eat, what they choose to eat, what they ignore, mm -hmm. and there's a time of the year where they will just devour the, bread, the bed straw, oh. which is fascinating. Yeah. And goldenrod. I didn't think anything ate goldenrod. But yum, 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 yum. They think that's wonderful. Oh, good. Yeah. But it's only at certain, they don't, they, they wait until short, just before it's starting to go uh, to bloom, which is perfect. Yeah. Yeah. It's exactly when you want it. And then they just, they just take it right down to the nose. Right. It's like, wow. I didn't think, I didn't think anything could eat it because it's full of all sorts of interesting chemicals. And do you notice that there's less coming in or because you're basically hand grazing them and they're not doing enough damage to prevent it from coming back? Well, of course, now that I'm learning more about goldenrod from Dr. Talamy, I'm, I want to encourage goldenrod. <laughs> so, so, so yes, you may eat it in certain areas, but, but, but we want to encourage it. You know, it's, I mean, that's one of the interesting things is is how much I'm changing the way I think about some of these plants that before were the enemy, as it were. And goldenrod certainly was because the horses don't touch it. It can take over a horse pasture. You see these, you know, you, you, you cut hay that's been cut from a field that's had a lot of goldenrod growing up in it. And all you're doing is uh, when you clean the stall in the morning is taking out the uneat, all this uneaten stalks that the horses won't touch. And so I, I've been trained to think of goldenrod as this horrible, horrible planning of, from, the, from the horse pasture management perspective. And now I'm thinking of it as this wonderful plant from a biodiversity perspective. Yeah. <laughs> so, a little of everything. Yeah, yeah. And I think Coral League is probably speak more to us in terms of all the lovely things that Goldenrod does. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah. I mean, it's yeah, it's one of the it's one of the most valuable in terms of um of the, the wildlife that will support. So it's definitely a a really great one to encourage. I thought it was really interesting you saying that your you know that your horse flies and things had gone down and your bird population has come up because I've you know now it sounds like you're managing your that land so wonderfully that. Um, with an ecosystem in balance like that, the birds will be doing such an incredible job of keeping those insect populations in balance. But yes, goldenrod, goldenrod is is one of the best, and the species will differ wherever, wherever you are in the country. But generally, you know, that, that genus will be will be it's, fantastic. It's interesting. I don't I don't recall seeing a lot of that here. But what <laughs> we I was shocked to find out that we are too far north for oak trees, believe it or not. I didn't know there was such a thing as too far north for oak trees. And in fact, there's there are two towns south of us is supposed to be the line. I have seen a couple oaks in the next town north, but there are no oaks up here. So we there are also very few, very few ticks up here. <laughs> if you go in the woods, you know, in spring and fall, my husband will come back with ticks on him, but knock on wood, the dogs don't get them and the horses don't get them. Um, so I wonder if that is in part because you, if you don't have some of the uh, acorns feeding the, the mice, the white-tailed mice, that that reduces the tick population. Because there were those wonderful studies. They were fascinating studies. They look at, you know, what, what are the animals that you really want to encourage if you want to control ticks and what are the animals that are the, the issue and it's not the deer that are the ones that are contributing to high tick populations it's things like the white-tailed mice mm -hmm. and they were going out and doing um, live traps and then counting the number of ticks that were on animals and uh, these poor mice their ears would just be covered in like 20, 30, 40, 60 ticks just covered. And when they uh, live trap possums and the raccoons, they were getting ticks on them, but they would self-groom. Yeah. So they were eating the ticks. So they will actually reduce the number of ticks that are in your area. So, you know, we, again, with the horses, we tend, we've been taught that possums are not good because of um, EPM. Right. But if you want to reduce the risk of Lyme disease, yeah. you want to be encouraging the possums because they self-groom. So they're, they're getting ticks on them, but they're eating them and reducing the, the numbers dramatically. So I wonder if because you, have, you don't have the acorns, so you're not perhaps getting the higher numbers of mice yeah. that that keeps and I have no idea yeah. yeah what else is really interesting is we didn't see woodchucks for the first five years which as far as I'm concerned yeah. were woodchucks I thought they lived everywhere and we did not yeah. see woodchucks until we've been here for and we still don't see a lot you know maybe one or two saw my first porcupine last fall oh wow exciting <laughs> who knows whether the climate change or whether this is what we've done here or uh, who knows you know why some of these things are happening we i don't think we can take claim or the blame for all all of it but um. i saw and i'm still astounded by it 
I saw a mink at my house. That's amazing. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And I, you know, I know it's a mink. I took pictures of it. I took a video yeah. of it. So I wasn't imagining it. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't some bizarre little squirrel thing and I was just making it up. But to have that here was like, wow, no. that's pretty neat. I think of them as being water-based. You have water. Well, there is water there. Yes. So yes, there's, it's not right at the house, but there is a, I mean, we're on a, um, drainage uh, basin here. So, okay. yeah, there is water. Who knows? But there it was. There it was. So, the time and patience for organic approaches to work. Yeah. That was on your list. What does, what does that Well, that's why I to? said I was almost in tears after we'd been here for a couple of years and my horses were going through the grass so fast because we didn't use any chemical fertilizers or I never know quite where lime falls on that line, whether that counts or not. We, as I say, we did lime the first year, but other than that, it's just been horse manure and careful grazing practices that have changed it around. But, but it took time, you know, I mean this, so the horses have what's right around the house. They have half of what's right around the house. As I say, they have four and a half acres. There's another five acre field on the other side of the house. And this 10 acres is what was kept open previously. So okay. it was possibly the most run out because it had been being hayed yearly with nothing put back on it. And so that, you know, it needed a lot of fertilizer to be put back on it. And, and I, we were relying on the horses to do that. You know, that was the only fertilizer they were getting as well as not overgrazing it. Because, you know, when I say we were out of grass, I wasn't allowed to let them eat it right down to the ground. Um, I was told <laughs> to get them off it. And so it just took time for that to work and break down because chemical fertilizers, my understanding, are immediately available to plants. So that's why you see that immediate reaction when the, you know, when the cornfields have been yeah. fertilized and all of a sudden the next day they look like they've grown three inches. Whereas the, the organic fertilizers have to break down slowly over time before they're available to the animals or to the plants. So but then you get that when you use the chemical fertilizers, what some of the things that I've been reading and learning is you get sort of the junk food plants mm -hmm. in that uh, they haven't, because they're, they're not creating the connections with the mycorrhizal fungi and they're not having to go deep down into the soil to get those minerals and to get the nutrients that they need. They're just, you know, you've given them uh, potato chips and, and pretzels right on the surface, as it were. Mm -hmm. And so you don't get that really deep root growth, which means that we're not sequestering carbon. You're not doing all of those things that we want to do in terms of how, how can we contribute to uh, mitigating the climate change crisis and create more biodiversity if you're putting, if you're creating junk food addicts in your plants and you have to keep putting this fertilizer down because they're not putting the roots down. So, yeah. And, you know, in contrast where we had, so we also had, so I always think of it as about half of our land is on fairly flat. And then when you get further back toward the woods, it drops off seriously. And that's forested area. And 
so we ha- we did have that logged the first we, we've been on a forestry management plan so it has been logged just once since we've owned it the first year but the reason i bring that up is where the logging trucks went in and had a logging road and they were pulling out all the trees the next year my husband was so excited he said look at this and where the soil had been disturbed and the trees had been opened up the clover that was coming in voluntarily out of it was just a mat of clover everywhere you would think that somebody had dumped a truckload of clover seed on what had previously been trees. So that had just been sitting there dormant for some reason forever. And what it needed was to have that soil disturbed, loosen things up, open it up to the sunlight. And that's why I say, even with no seeding being done here, we've just got incredible pastures uh, with good plants for the animals to thrive on. So like I say, I don't know. (laughs) I don't know who put them there, what they were waiting for. I mean, I I guess they were just waiting to be given the opportunity. That's right. And so for the, for the sheep and the cows that that created something that created pasture that was good for them. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. And and there's a lot of clover, um, that they thrive on. There's a fair amount of clover in the horse pasture. I haven't seen any problems with it. I think there's enough other stuff out there and the horses are used to eating a variety. You know, there are sometimes I think, don't. and what, you know, when I took that test, I thought, okay, how do I know what to cut? Because there's so many different right. plants and different types. So I would go, I actually went out and I would video the horses, what they were eating and I would go to the places because even if, you know, in the paddocks they're in, there are still big pieces that they might not go eat. And I don't know, actually, that's another interesting part. I'm not quite sure why they don't really go to that spot as much as others, but I would go to the spots where they had eaten and find some plants that were still full and, and cut those. So I was really getting what they were eating as opposed to taking what they weren't eating, which would have been the easy thing to do because I wanted to assess what they were eating. But the other thing that made me think of was when we first started doing rotational grazing, my husband wanted to vary vary the livestock that was on any particular pasture. So he said, let's let the horses go through and let's get the sheep go through behind them. And then we'll let the cattle go through behind that and, you know, all that sort of thing. And I want to tell you, my horses said, ew, (laughs) (laughs) I'm not eating this stuff. 30 days after the sheep had been on it. And I thought, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh. So we basically stopped doing that. But we've done it incidentally here a couple times when the pastures have just gotten too much for us, for for the horses. I've sort of shut my eyes and said, all right, turn the sheep on it. And they, you know, graze it all down. And the horses are okay. So I'm not quite sure what's changed there either whether they've just lived side by side with the sheep long enough that it doesn't offend them anymore, or again, whether it's a difference in where we are or what it is. And then in your pastures, do your horses have the bathroom area and the areas that they graze the way that they, no. Nope, nope, they do in the sacrifice paddock. They will go around the edges. 
you know, leave all the manure around the edges for the most part. But in the grass, they just go wherever they happen to be. That's interesting. Yeah. That's a, that's a good change then. Well, because that's often when you're not rotating the pastures, they'll have the areas where they, they just, that's the, the bathroom area. They won't graze there. They don't touch it. But then they're overgrazing right. and down to that, you know, that not even golf course putting green. It's even yeah. uh, shorter than that. So that's a, that's a good shift. Yep. They, yeah, no, I don't, I don't see that. And then, you know, so then there's the question at the end of the season, should you be quote unquote clipping the pastures? You know, that's a standard sort of horse, yeah. horse pasture philosophy that, you know, you should clip your pastures regularly so you don't get that overgrowth and whatnot. And by not clipping them, you're leaving that shaded, you know, cover for critters of all types, yes. bugs to flies to birds to, and, and birds are another interesting thing because there are some protected species up here that they will pay you not to pay up until a certain date so that some of the, the ground nesting birds have an opportunity to hatch their young. But I think with rotational grazing, that is happening naturally because there are big chunks of the fields that are going long periods of time without any disturbance at all. There aren't any stock on them. There aren't any equipment on them. So I actually contacted somebody and said, after hearing Ken Ramirez talk about conservation training, and I thought, well, why aren't we training these birds to nest in this corner of the pasture? You know, rather than paying farmers not to harvest a whole field, let's train the birds and she said yeah we're doing that so i said oh, <laughs> oh that's amazing yeah, I have, yeah and i you know i didn't go into detail but basically i thought i was going to be opening her eyes to something amazing and she already knew all about it so but yeah i do think that you know by rotating the pastures as i say you know even if there's a 10 acre field that through the month of june or through two weeks of june they're going to graze through it it's not constant access. so do you do you mow your pastures at all your horse pastures do you cut them well so that yeah that's what i was saying so and you know it's different every year but depending on the weather the one year that we really needed to cut was 2019 and i believe that was a really wet year was also the year percy did his knee okay and the consequence <laughs> of that was that the world ended. <laughs> Nothing was normal here. I basically had two going out on this field because Percy was on stall rest, so he wasn't on any grass. He needed company, and Kizzy yes. said, the bugs are really, really bad. I'll stay in the barn with him. <laughs> so she wasn't on pasture. Andy and Rumor, Andy likes to go wherever he goes as fast as he can get there. And I knew that turning him out was going to send Percy right through a window. You know, oh, if he heard Andy right. going thundering out. And I said, all right, you guys are staying over here for the, for the summer. So it was really Walter and Stowaway who had the whole thing to themselves. And they yeah. just, you know, I mean, they were fat pigs and could not keep up with anything. So I think that was really the reason that things got, and that was the year that I, I'm pretty sure that was the year that we did have the sheep go in and do some of it, but it had just gotten 
more had gotten knocked down than gotten eaten. So we just had this kind of mat of mess that was going to prevent growth next year. So my husband went in with a brush hog and raised it up as high as he could so that when he clipped it, there was still a good six or eight inches. I don't know what the length is on the brush hog, but basically he kept it up really, really high to get it off, but still leave plenty of growing, living grass there. And last year, did you, did you cut them? He, he would remember that better than I would. I don't think so. Sometimes, again, because, you know, because I'm rotating and, you know, I mean, you know what it's like in New England. Yes. On June 1st, you're barely safe to turn out. And two weeks later, you're mowing your lawn every single day and you can't yes. keep up with it. And it's like, everything has exploded. So in that two weeks, you know, my horses have only gone. That's, that's the move them over it quickly. You know, I'm like, well, they haven't finished it all. And they're still, and it's like, it's growing so fast to get them off this paddock, get them onto the next one. And even so, by the time, you know, we go through all 13 paddocks, paddock number 13 has gotten pretty high. So sometimes, you know, he did, he had, he, he did cut 50% of it. He did mow. Because there was just so much there that it wasn't going to, um, it wasn't going to be good stuff for them. So he did go through and mow it half, half of it partway through last. That's always a conundrum that I have with my pastures is should I cut? Should I not cut? And then with the backfields, they want to keep the backfields open. And that's always for me a bit of friction because we're not, Hey, we can't, you can't hate them. You can't get equipment back there. Mm. It's just sort of for the aesthetics of having these open fields, but you're mowing them and you're mowing them at times of the year when there's all this wildlife that's dependent on mm. that tall grass. Yeah. Leave it alone. Yeah. So it's, it's such a quandary of what to do and how do you keep that balance of, yes, we want it open, but it's also habitat for wildlife yeah and there are there's some, some things you can do if it has to be i agree it'd be much better if it could be left alone but if it has to be made the land owners need it to be made there are certain kind of things you can do like splitting it up into sections and just knowing one at a time just over a period of days to give the wildlife time to move you know literally time to just escape from the mowers and starting starting in the middle and moving out so that they have the ability to escape into areas that you know they're not being kind of um, shut in or can't escape and then having the mower lengths a little longer kind of so six inches or so so and it's it's not like yeah it would be i ideally leave it alone but if you if you can't leave it alone those kind of things can make it can make a difference to the individual little creatures that are are, are living there <laughs> and i actually don't like mowing because i'm forever stopping <laughs> Oh, I, I need to rescue this praying mantis. You know, oh, wait for wait for that mole family right, to get away. Yeah, and some people even say, you know, you can like start the mower and just leave it running for a little while because you know the noise and just it being there. Give start it running, leave it running for just a little while. You don't want to put more fumes out, obviously, but just to give them that that right. that warning that it's coming <laughs> to to get out of the out of the way. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, because if you don't mow at all, you do risk losing it back to, you know, no longer stays grassland. Even right. this out here, those little willows 
there's apparently we got pretty excited because apparently it's a, um, a diamond willow we have and somebody said oh that stuff's valuable because I guess for carving purposes for like walking sticks and stuff it makes very beautiful patterns so I spent a little time looking into how we could market that but it didn't turn out to be <laughs> very realistic but those things come in quick yeah you know I have to yeah. go out with my lopping shear to cut them off at the base when they start coming in because the horses don't eat them. And boy, they, they would happily take over pretty quickly. But they're another so. one of those species that Dr. Tallamy would put high on the list of things that you want. That, so that's why I'm spoiled because we are in the middle of nowhere. So even if I lop off all the willows in my four acres, we're surrounded by literally hundreds of acres yeah. of uncharted territory yeah. that is just and that's the way you know I know there are people who say yeah I have two barn cats and I have them for the purpose of keeping my barn free of mice and birds and people are horrified by it and all the songbirds that are dying because of the and I say we've got 275 acres there's plenty of room for the birds yes and as I say, we hear them now more than we did before. It's learning how to have your cake and eat it too, to say there, there are parts of the property where we can encourage and, and allow the willow to grow up. They serve a, a useful function. You know, in some of the boggier areas, great, let's have willow. But in this area, this is being cultivated for the horses. But if I'm going to have horse pasture, I don't want to have the kind of horse pasture that I see so frequently when I'm driving around the countryside where it's just this overgrazed mud hole. It's not producing a good quality of life for the horses. It's not producing healthy horses. And it certainly is not aesthetically pleasing. And it's not doing anything for uh, biodiversity in the environment. So you have, you have your cake and eat it too. You have grass that your horses can eat. You have more grass than your horses can eat. You have more birds than you had when you started, when you came there. Um, this is what we want. It's been pretty nice. Yeah. So your fencing choices, what do you use for fencing? Because you, you clearly you have, first of all, you're in Vermont. So putting fencing into the ground is a challenge. Because there are these things called rocks. <laughs> yes. So what we have for, we actually, again, through the, um, through some federal programs, federal, state, federal, NRCS, were able to fence the majority of where the livestock are with a woven wire. So it's four feet of woven wire. The, around the bottom, we have a strand of barbed wire because we have coyotes and we have sheep. And even though we have guard dogs, the coyotes still, we see places where they've dug in under. So the coyotes can still get in with the sheep. And thankfully the guard dogs take care of them from there. And then there's one strand of electric across the top. So for the horse pasture, I got the special horse woven wire that's small enough diameter that a horse isn't gonna put their foot through it. Yes. Um, I don't have the barbed wire around the bottom because the horse pastures are A, close enough to the house, and B, like I say, I don't leave them out overnight. They're right. up 
by the barn at night. So eh, I think they're pretty good at defending themselves. I don't think, although we did have a coyote in the driveway not one day last summer. And then I do have a strand of, bar of uh, electric along the top just to prevent anybody from leaning on it, scratching on it or anything. Right, right. So that's my perimeter fence. So that fence is the entire four and a half acres. And I have never had that before. And I love it because it means when the power goes out, yes. I still have something that keeps my horses in, you know, or if, you know, I mean, the snow and the wind would take down any rope or tape or anything yep. else that yep. was put up. There's no, I mean, even two years ago, I was snowshoeing right over the top of the four, four and a half foot fence because we had so much snow. Wow. And so there's no way electric would survive. I mean, that a rope or anything like that would survive in that situation. So then in the summer, that's why I say every fall I take, I roll up all the rope and I use the electric rope. So it's like half three quarter inch diameter, probably. Yeah. That's what I and it is. It is electric. Yeah. Um, it's visible. Yep. It is easy to put up relatively and take down um, the horses. You know, I mean, they've got so much to eat. They have no reason to challenge it. And that's, <laughs> oh, Percy. Um, and that is the other thing that would happen when I was really confining them several years ago when they were in really small paddocks. I looked out one day to see Percy sort of leaning and I saw him get zapped a little bit and he backed up and I saw him, I saw him buck twice and I thought, oh, well that made you mad. You're not gonna do that. No, he then took two trotting steps and jumped out. <laughs> so he, the first couple of years, we did not have the perimeter fence. And like you say, Robin comes to the door and knocks on the door, Percy yes. would jump out before we had enough grass for him. When he thought there was nothing left, he would jump out and come and look in the window and go, excuse me, <laughs> there isn't enough grass. Now, what do you do with a horse like that? You know, you've got to reinforce him because he came, he didn't go running off. Yeah, right. Um, right. He also takes the electric fence posts in his teeth and picks them up and <laughs> takes the posts <laughs> so that he could get out. So permanent perimeter fence is a good idea for him. Yeah. Because um, even if he gets out of his little inside ones. So yeah, then I just use that rope, the, the rope fence for the internal pieces. And there's one area that is not permanent fenced that it's around, a, we call it the manure pile paddock. It's where the manure pile is, but there's, there's lots of good grass around it. It's just the way it kind of laid out. So yeah. I'll put, I can trust the ponies out there. You know, so I'll make these tiny little strips because it's good grass. You don't want it to go to waste. Right. So right. I'll put these tiny little strips. I'll move that every day so that, you know, two ponies can graze. I'm like, you guys clean that up and then you can go back out with the horses. And do so, you use the, uh, the step um, um, No, they're the, um, they're fiber rods. Oh, I know. So they're yep. pretty big diameter and I use a, a rubber mallet to get them in. Yeah. Yeah. They're cheaper. Yeah, the step posts are pricey. Yeah. But they're they're really easy to use. They are. And you don't have to worry too much about, I mean, you can usually find in our soil, you can usually avoid enough rock that you can get them in. We're sort of in the same kind of situation, of, though in the pasture we're lucky that the, the soil is pretty deep and where the pastures are. 
but you can get to those areas where the soil is really shallow. So now the silvo pasture. Tell me about that. Of course, I'm going to make you wait for next time to learn what silvo pasture is. At the end of the previous episode, I left you with a disclaimer for both myself and Jane. I think I will reiterate it here. You've heard Jane say several times, this is what she has done. Remember, Jane has done her research. She's not putting her laminitic ponies out on rich cow grass. She's not turning them out on grass when sugars are at their peak. She's not telling you to stop worming your horses so you too can have dung beetles. She's reporting on what she has done based on a lifetime of horse care and considerable research. You need to do your own research. You are solely responsible for the choices you make. Jane has shared what she is doing with her horses. I hope you find it useful, but you will need to do your own research. Jane and I are not responsible for any choices you make for your own horses and your pasture management. But through these visits with Jane and with the others, I hope this sparks some ideas and some interest in doing that research. We are definitely learning more about horse care. Because I teach clinics and because I travel and I travel to different parts of the country and I see horses being managed under different uh, kinds of conditions, under different in different climates and different growth zones, etc., etc., I've gotten to see a lot of different ways in which horses are very successfully managed. And that's really opened my thinking to the idea that there isn't the way to take care of horses. There are many ways to take care of horses, and some of them are better than what I grew up with and what I have had observed over decades of horse care. So my horses have definitely been the beneficiaries of my journey around the world, as it were. And that's what I want to share here with you, are some of the ideas about horse care that may prompt you to make some changes for the better for your own horses and for the care of the land that you have stewardship over. So remember, we can make a difference in the climate change crisis, and we can make a difference for our horses. Together, we're learning how.